Welcome to Sunday Starters, Episode 1. I'm Andy Mangum. I will be looking at biblical text for the upcoming Sunday from the lectionary and uh, trying to provide a non-chatty overview of those biblical texts. And today we begin with uh, Easter, your C, which has Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43 as one of the possible readings. And I would build a sermon series or a worship series around God's expanding circle of friendship, something along those lines, as we would look at the biblical text, uh, the, the Acts text, rather, uh, for, um, uh, for the season of Eastertide, from Easter Sunday up through Pentecost. During year C, the Revised Common Lectionary places Peter's speech to Cornelius' house uh, on Easter Sunday. And at first glance, this would not be the appropriate place to put that. It occurs uh, years, perhaps, after uh, Pentecost Sunday. Of course, Pentecost takes place 50 days after the um, uh, resurrection. Yet the speech summarizes Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, and so its content fits the climax of the liturgical calendar. But there's another question underneath this, which is, what is the proclamation of resurrection doing at a juncture like this? The story is a story of boundary crossing, of Peter, a Jew, who crossed a boundary into the Gentile world. And Peter's speech to the Cornelius house could have recounted any number of stories about how open-minded and receptive Jesus was in his ministry. So why is the resurrection at the heart of this sermon? Well, let's look a little bit to the context. Uh, the book is dedicated to the, the Theophilus, and uh, the Gospel of Luke is also dedicated to Theophilus. That name means friend of God, Theo meaning uh, if, uh, God. Uh, we think of the word theology and philos, uh, from w- which we get the name of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It means brotherly love. And so a Theophilus, a Theophilus, is a friend of God. The people I studied with uh, believe that Theophilus uh, may have been a nickname for a real person who might have been uh, Luke's patron in writing the, the, the two-volume set, Luke and Acts, uh, the, the life of Jesus and the formation of the church, um, though it certainly lends itself to metaphor, doesn't it, uh, that you and I can be friends of God because of God's grace to us. Uh, The book of Acts as a whole seems to be an unfolding narrative of people who didn't think they would be accepted by God, who are finding themselves in friendship with God. And this is especially true of this reading. Uh, Acts begins with Peter, um, and Peter, you know, might have thought himself unworthy to be Jesus' friend or a friend of God. Uh, The story is told in the Gospel of Luke how Jesus on the night of his arrest, prepared his disciples for what was to come, and Peter swore undying allegiance to Jesus, and Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. Luke narrated the experience when Peter had followed behind those who had arrested Jesus and stood out in the courtyard warming himself while Jesus' trial took place. He was there confronted twice about being a Galilean and therefore a follower of Jesus, and twice he denied it. He was accused a third time with this accusation. Surely this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, this is how Luke narrates it. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Only Luke gives us that detail, that the Lord turned and looked through perhaps a window or through an open door and saw Peter and they met each other eye to eye. What was conveyed in that glance? Then Peter remembered and he went out bitterly and wept, went out wept and wept bitterly. Um, something happens, of course, then uh, between that moment and the beginning of the book of Acts. Because at the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter is there uh, receiving Christ's welcome and promise that, uh, and, and he is then the one who stands up and speaks for God. So Simon Peter, a cowardly betrayer, becomes Peter, friend of God and leader of the early church. He's not the only one. In Acts chapter 5, we read about an Ethiopian eunuch who, according to Deuteronomy 23, would have been denied entry into the temple because of his anatomy, nonetheless is a recipient of Philip's proclamation, acceptance, and the extension of God's grace. He is baptized on the spot. The Ethiopian eunuch, temple outcast, becomes a friend of God. In chapter 9, we encounter Saul. Uh, Saul is a violent persecutor of the Christian movement, was confronted on the road to Damascus by the risen Lord himself, welcomed into the church with fear and trepidation, unleashed on the world as a passionate proclaimer of God's grace. So Saul of Tarsus becomes, uh, the, the Saul of Tarsus, the, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the apostle, friend of God. In chapter 16, we read about a demon-possessed girl in Philippi who was used by men for fortune-telling and for profit. And she followed behind Paul and Silas and annoyed them to no end until finally Paul cast the demon out of her, making her um, unprofitable for her quote-unquote owners. Uh, but she was also not tormented by uh, this demon anymore. So this Philippian fortune-teller, indwelled by demons, is set free in the name of Jesus Christ and becomes a friend of God. Acts is full of this. Ananias the fearful, Lydia the assertive, Cornelius the outsider, Dionysus the overeducated, each of them discover that they are God's friend, that they are Theophilus, and their status within the friendship circle of God surprises them. I hope it surprises us as well. So if I were to build this worship series, I would build it on the thesis that one of the implications of resurrection is the inclusion of people who thought they were excluded. Peter was prepared uh, for his own conversion to this moment by a vision he received that's recorded in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Peter was hungry. He fell into a trance and watched as the sheet was lowered with all manner of, quote, unclean animals. Peter refused to partake of the unclean animals, saying, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything profane and unclean. The response to him was that God had made clean, you must not call unclean. What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. And so when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, uh, Cornelius is a centurion. The book of Acts describes Cornelius as one who is God-fearing. And, and good, but still uh, a Gentile, still a centurion who uh, would have belonged to that class of people that crucified Jesus. Um, and so when Peter arrives, he says to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Acts 10.28 
points to a radical nature of the boundary crossing. Uh, David Balch, a uh, biblical scholar I was able to study with at Bright, uh, wrote this. He said, we do not usually realize how radical it is when the believers in Joppa, that's Acts 10.28, hear Peter characterize Cornelius as allophili. Uh, they, when, and that's uh, spelled in, in, in the English transliteration of the Greek word, A-L-L-O-P-H-Y-L-E, uh, and then baptize him. Balch explains that the uh, allophile is a Greek transliteration uh, for Philistines who are characterized in the Septuagint as worshiping idols uncircumcised and frequently at odds with the people of Judea. Balch declares he is baptizing Goliath into the church. This was an extraordinary thing for a Jewish believer in, one, the, in the one crucified under the centurion supervision, according to Luke 23:47, to accept, much less accomplish this, is an amazing feat. So the speech begins. Uh, Peter is welcomed into Cornelius' house. After acknowledging the awkwardness of the moment, Peter begins to speak, and it said, uh, then Peter began to speak to them, truly I understand God shows no partiality. Uh, partiality is translated in one uh, translation, the New International Version, as favoritism, um, and, and this is not a new concept. Uh, Jesus, uh, Peter is actually interpreting scripture for us. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of God and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality or take bribes. In 2 Chronicles 9, 19, uh, there are warnings against showing partiality. Job 34, 19 says, God shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And this, uh, there are several references in uh, Paul's writings, in Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25, that emphasize uh, God's uh, decision not to show partiality over other people. As well, in 1 Peter, we read uh, about uh, the, the denial of partiality on God's part, uh, but perhaps the most important uh, expansion of this is in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So that one of the themes that would be emphasized in this text uh, would be that God does not show partiality. Uh, verse 35 begins, but in every tribe and nation, uh, anyone who fears God uh, and does what is right is acceptable to God. The disciples had watched Jesus uh, rupture boundary after boundary uh, through his ministry that's disclosed in the Gospel of Luke and now is being lived out again in the work of the apostles. Uh, Miroslav Volf, a theologian uh, currently at Yale, writes this in uh, a book called Exclusion and Embrace, an important theological text of the 21st century. Uh, Volf writes, Jesus offset the stark binary logic that regulates so much of social life. So society divided into X, the superior in-group, and the non-X, inferior out-group. And then whatever is not X, say people who eat different foods or have different bodies, is made into non-X and therefore assigned to the inferior out-group. The mission of renaming what was falsely labeled unclean aimed at abolishing the warped system of exclusion, what people call clean, in the name of an order of things that God, the creator sustainer of life, has made clean. Uh, so we have this uh, vision then of God 
making Cornelius clean by God's grace or uh, rather of, of erasing um, that binary of clean and unclean and claiming that all that God has made is good. It will be important to note, I think, here uh, that this is not the uh, erasure of sin. Uh, we have other texts in which we could proclaim the message of God's forgiveness uh, of sin and wrongdoing, uh, and those are important texts, but uh, it would be, I think, um, a misinterpretation to include that here. It is important to note that uh, Acts 10 2 uh, emphasizes that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. Uh, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. So uh, Cornelius is an outsider by virtue of his ethnicity and his profession, but uh, not so much because he is viewed as someone sinful. Again, there are other texts that emphasize God's forgiveness of sin and, and God's um, uh, redemption of all humanity. Uh, but, uh, but I think this is a text where we want to think about some of those social structures that divide people. Um, verse 36 continues. You know the message. Uh, the word Greek uh, there is used as logos. You know the logos uh, that he sent to, to the people of Israel, that God sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all. Uh, the New American Standard Bible translates this verse saying it this way. The word which uh, God, he sent to the sons of Israel. Um, there should be a stress here then on uh, the, the emphasis on, on of all. Uh, verse 37, that message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, uh, with the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth uh, with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, uh, for God was with him. Uh, so here's another theme. We've talked about the theme of partiality and God not showing partiality. Another theme that I would emphasize here is the theme of Jesus' whole life as interpreted by God's activity. Verse 38, God anointed. Verse 38, uh, God was with him. Verse 40, God raised him. Uh, verse 40, God made uh, Jesus to appear to be visible. And verse 42, God ordained Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. So wh what do you make of that, right? What is God's activity? Uh, uh, one of my professors, uh, Gene Boring, would talk about the acts of God being creation, uh, covenant, Christ, church, and consummation. And so this would be a space where we might talk about the, what it means to have faith in what God has done. We are witnesses to all the things that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. Uh, interesting to note here that uh, God is not given the uh, uh, designation as the one who put Jesus to death, uh, but rather there are others who did that. The term witnesses here is important, and we'll talk a, a little bit about that later, uh, but, um, but, the, but the passage goes on and continues. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him uh, to appear. God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible to us. Uh, Jesus was crucified as an alleged Messiah. God raised him from the dead to affirm that the allegation was true. Jesus came and proclaimed this message 
uh, that God did not show partiality in both the religious circles of the day, which often do uh, emphasize partiality, uh, that some are better than others, that some are clean and others are unclean, uh, that, um, that, uh, that, that as well the civil uh, community uh, works off of hierarchy and meritocracy. Uh, Jesus proclaimed a different vision than the one being proclaimed both by society and by, uh, by the religious world. And so they crucify that, trying to silence him. And so this is where I believe the resurrection comes into play, uh, that, Jesus, that God in the resurrection comes to, to say, do you want to reconsider your rejection of this vision of what the, 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 the sovereignty of God looks like? Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor said, uh, to restore a dead person to life is to strike a blow at mortality but to restore a crucified man to life is to strike a blow at the systems that executed him. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the world said, uh, you do not speak for God. And in the resurrection, God said, yes, he does. To speak of resurrection is to speak of God's ultimate affirmation of the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. So too, then, God places an affirmation on the spirit and the work that Jesus Christ initiated. And this includes the message that God's love is not bound by human-made distinction. Those who claim uh, the resurrection as the high point of their faith must also see that what God has done for them, God seeks to do for all through them. A person with faith in the resurrection cannot regard another person whom God has forgiven as unclean. Resurrection is God's affirmation of Jesus' proclamation. Only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God does not follow Jesus' own directives. God does not knock down the dirt of God's sandals and move on. Uh, the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of the resurrection, is that through it, God gives the world, gives us, a second chance to reconsider our earlier rejection of Christ's vision. Yes, it's true that the risen one was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had chosen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. But Peter here speaks to of those who ate and drank after his resurrection to emphasize the theme of hospitality that is present in the text. It also connects Acts 1, 11, 3, where the people back in Palestine are critical of Peter for eating with the Gentiles. It is through their witness those who ate and drank with the risen one and their willingness to eat with each other that we find our own salvation. Through the power of the resurrection, diverse people are collected into the church. People like the uncircumcised pork-eating centurion Cornelius and the passionate persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, and the unmarried household governing European businesswoman Lydia, Luke Acts delivers the message that God will go to any length to reclaim what belongs to God. And that means you and me, and it also means those people we can't imagine anyone loving, but can learn to love through our on ongoing conversion. Through the presence of the risen Christ, the church repeatedly receives God's grace as an open door to reconsider accepting what we have rejected. We, like Peter, can hear God say, do not call unclean what I have made clean, or do not call unacceptable what God in Christ has proclaimed accepted. 
Not to all of us, verse 41 says, not to all people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Uh, witnesses, as we've said, are important, have an important role in the book of Acts. Um, in Acts 1.8, we read that uh, we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. Uh, but there's also this emphasis on those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. A common interpretation of this is that Jesus' eating and drinking was tangible evidence of his bodily resurrection, and yet it also evokes memories of meals that Jesus shared with various people. Significantly, there are moments in Luke Acts where a gospel bearer's boundary crossing depends upon the gospel receiver's hospitality. In Luke 7, a centurion requests Jesus' attention for his ailing servant. Jesus is willing to go to the man's house. However, the centurion himself excuses Jesus from that boundary crossing. In Luke 7, 36 through 50, a sinful woman, quote-unquote sinful woman, enters the house of a Pharisee where Jesus is staying. She cleans his feet, and Jesus accepts her actions in terms of contrasting her hospitality with his lack of hospitality. In Luke 8, 26 through 39, Jesus is denied hospitality by the residents of the Gerasenes after an exorcism, and so he leaves. In Luke 19, 1 through 9, Jesus requests and receives hospitality from Zacchaeus, a tax collector. In the description of Paul's ministry in Acts, Paul receives hospitality from Lydia as well as from the Philippian jailer. In both these instances, the act of hospitality accompanies the receiving of the gospel and baptism. In Jesus' own teaching, he connects the good news proclamation and hospitality. He sends out the 12, telling them not to carry additional resources with them, teaching them to instead receive the hospitality in whatever town they go into to shake off the dust from any town that does not offer them hospitality. In the second commissioning of the disciples, Jesus expands on the earlier teaching concerning reception of hospitality. Here, the curses for an inhospitable city are great. In both, there is a connection between hospitality of the receiver and the capacity of the disciple to proclaim the kingdom of God. Clearly, Luke Acts sees a strong connection between a person receiving the good news and their willingness to extend hospitality to the one bringing the good news. I think it goes both ways. The church can also be a place that extends hospitality as a way of extending the gospel. We shouldn't get too far away from the story and this expression of hospitality without talking about the two who experienced the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they talk with Jesus. He explains to them what's happening, uh, but their eyes are not open to his risen presence until they have extended hospitality and that the breaking of the bread, then their eyes are opened. Verse 42, uh, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. There is a narrative world in Acts 10, 34 through 43. Uh, and I think it's important to think about any text we're looking at and imagine what are the events in the, uh, this text that are envisioned in its narrative world. In this narrative world, uh, prophets testified about Jesus. Uh, there is reference to Jesus' baptism, his anointing at Nazareth, uh, his ministry of doing good and healing those who were oppressed by Satan, uh, his death on the cross, and how God raised him on the third day, 
his appearance to the select, his meals shared with them after his death, and then Jesus' command to preach. That's the narrative world envisioned in this text. And so there is a summary of all of Jesus' life, making it a beautiful text to begin our Eastertide journey, linking it to uh, the experience before. All of the prophets testified about him. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, through this name, Acts makes frequent reference to the salvific power in the name of Jesus. In Peter's Pentecost speech, he preaches of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Beverly Gadventa writes, It is by issue of hospitality that Luke demonstrates that the conversion of the Gentile required the conversion of the church as well. Indeed, in Luke's account, Peter and the company undergo a change that is more wrenching by far than the change experienced by Cornelius. The church had to convert to this paradigm for itself. Do not regard as unclean any person God has made, any person that God has loved, any person that God has forgiven. When Peter is confronted by those in Judea for his action, he offers a speech giving his account. The evidence that Peter's actions were right is lodged within the presence of the Holy Spirit seen in the ecstatic tongues. He concludes his speech by saying, So if God gave them the same gift God has given us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? To which the people respond, So then, God has granted, even, even granted the Gentile repentance unto life. Indeed, God has. Thanks be to God. And remember, redeem the commute, for the drives are evil.